This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Wangal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. What is Tybalt? More than Prince of Cats, I can tell you. Oh, he is the courageous captain of compliments. He fights as you sing prick song, keeps time, distance, and proportion, rests me his minimum rest, one, two, and a third in your bosom. The very butcher of a silk button, a duelist, a duelist, a gentleman of the very first house of the first and second cause. Ah, the immortal Posado. The Ponte Reversa, the hay, the pox on such antic lisping, affecting fantasticos, these new tuners of accents. By Jesu, a very good blade, a very tall man, a very good whore. Why is this not a lamentable thing, grandsire, that we should be thus afflicted with these strange flies, these fashion mongers, these pardonnamies who stand so much on the new form that they cannot sit at ease on the old bench? Oh, they're bones! They're bones! Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was Mercutio from Act 2, Scene 4 of Romeo and Juliet, read by our guest this week. He is an award-winning movement and fight director, stunt performer, intimacy director and actor. For Bell Shakespeare, his credits include Much Ado About Nothing, Richard III, Macbeth, three productions of Hamlet, three productions of Romeo and Juliet, and many, many more. He's heavily in demand across Australia and the US, working with the Metropolitan Opera of New York, the Washington Opera, the New York City Ballet, Opera Australia and Circus Oz, to name a few. His screen credits include Pirates of the Caribbean 5, The Water Diviner, The Bourne Legacy, The Good Wife, Boardwalk Empire, The Sopranos, 30 Rock and Law and Order Criminal Intent. It is my pleasure to welcome Nigel Poulton. Nigel, welcome to Speak the Speech. Thanks, Jimmy. It's a absolute pleasure to be here. Oh, it's so good. You know, Nigel, I was just thinking every other episode of that first series, we I was saying, Nigel this, Nigel that. You've been such a big part of Bell Shakespeare's work over the years, so it's such a pleasure to actually have you on the program now. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm honoured and grateful to be here. Bell Shakespeare has been a huge part of my life for so long. Yeah, well, I'd love to talk about that in a minute. But first of all, to Mercutio, and I know you love this speech because there is so much encapsulated in here about fighting styles and about Shakespeare's knowledge of different fighting styles. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, it's a fascinating speech. It's a fascinating play, actually, um, from, a, from a historical point of view and from a martial artist's point mm. of view as well. I guess it helps to just put everything in context a little bit and very roughly talk about what was uh, going on in Elizabethan England at the time mm. Um, mm. and this, uh, this kind of competition between styles, between this cultural conflict, I guess, that was happening between what was yeah. what was coming over from the continent, from Europe, and what was seen as traditionally English. There is a traditional English system of martial arts that has a, a long history um, that was uh, 
um, really promoted uh, through one organisation in particular, the, the 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 company of the Masters of Defence, um, mm. and it was a it was a martial heritage that was um, embedded in the working class and in the commoners more. Yeah. Um, and then there was a there was a, the aristocracy were were seeking um, to I guess they were investing in um, in continental systems. So they were investing in this newfangled rapier and dagger um, that was coming over from Europe, particularly right. um, from <clears throat> what we now know as Italy, that area. Um, coming into England and being adopted by the gentry as a symbol of their wealth and opulence, um, mm. and, and you know, as much as a as much a weapon as a status symbol, I guess. In amongst that, there was also the 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 gentlemanly class of weapons that the traditional English gentry had. So it was quite a lot going on socio-culturally, I guess. There. And so then does Tybalt kind of represent that new form of continental fighting? Because Mercutio seems to be, uh, you know, really sending it up here, taking the piss. Yeah, I think, you know, I think Shakespeare is a brilliant commercial artist and he is creating uh, alliances um, with the, 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 he's helping their audience create alliances with these particular right. characters, you know. So mm. Mercutio, absolutely, you could say that he at one level represents the commoners and represents this traditional English system of sword mm. play. He's very derisive towards Tybalt. He's very derisive towards Tybalt's style of fighting. Mm. Um, and it kind of parallels uh, with a text that came out around this time, a text that was um, written by George Silver called Paradoxes of Defence, yeah. um, which was an ad- admonishment to good English folk to not forget their traditional English ways. Mm. And, you know, I guess for, for a long time it was seen as quite a xenophobic piece of work. But the the kind of the martial principles that he's talking about in that in that work are very valid, very very sound principles, um, and the way that he unpacks the the more more unpacks the pedagogy of the continental systems and points out their flaws. You know, this certainly has merit. It's not necessarily a reflection on the systems themselves, but maybe that the way the systems were being taught. But in yeah. any case, George Silver is is a proponent of a traditional English um, way that he fears as being lost or being subsumed by what is coming over from the continent. And Tybalt kind of represents that. He represents that 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 continent continental um, aesthetic, I guess, and that continental style. It seems like Mercutio is saying that the fighting style is too fussy or something. He's saying he's keeping time, distance and proportion. There's no, there's not much instinct in there. He's sort of he's very technical as a fighter. Is that is that the the derision? Is that where it's coming from? Well, he's absolutely talking about the the technical aspects of the fight um, uh, and the technical aspects of the way these weapons were deployed. He's talking about fencing theory when he talks about time, distance. Um, and proportion. He is literally talking about the three fundamentals of, of fencing theory: time, right, distance, and right. proportion. Um, mm-hmm. And that is that is universal in any system. But then he's got these, um, you know, he's got these other little cues. Uh, you know, I, I guess later on he says when they actually when they actually start to fight, or when t- uh, Mercutio is goading Tybalt, he says, "Tybalt, will you walk?" 
Um, mm. And mm. when he is wounded, when he's mortally wounded, he says he fights by the book of arithmetic. So all, yes. all of these are, are sort of indicators that he's talking about a very um, precise and geometrically based system, which is what was happening is what the way the, the masters were writing about and trying to um, uh, sy- uh, systematize these mm. systems was systematize these systems. Um, the way they were doing that was by using geometry. They were, they were basically trying to find ways to express time and motion and they're using geometry yes. to do that. And fencing is about geometry. It's about controlling the blade and controlling time, distance and proportion. And and he's he's poking fun of it. And it's interesting because there was a there is a character that was running a fencing school in England at the time, um, Saviolo, and mm-hmm. th- there's there's certainly a really strong case to be made that that Shakespeare is writing about Saviolo when he writes about um, mm. when he when he when he writes what Tybalt is saying about Mercutio. Um, right. Saviolo bought a very distinct style, which was actually kind of a cross between the Spanish and Italian style. And they are in and of themselves very distinctly different. And mm. Saviolo kind of has this kind of blend of these systems that he's teaching in in England at this time. And George Silver writes about Saviolo in his book. The very butcher of a silk button is almost a direct reference to um, Rocco Bonetti's boast that he could hit any Englishman with a thrust just upon any button in his doublet. So yeah, Rocco right. Bonetti mm. is a fencing, an Italian fencing teacher mm. teaching in England um, at the time, and he was teaching just before um, Saviolo, uh, just before Saviolo started teaching. But you know, it, that's a that's, you know, that's more than a coincidence. That quote, yeah. I think. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Shakespeare would have had all sorts of sources and been so widely read, I think. And and are these specific uh, moves, the passado, the, the punta reverso, the high? Yeah, they actually are, yeah. The, the, the passado is really um, is, is, a, is a thrust, so using the point, extending the point out in a straight mm. line and passing your feet as you do it. So, mm-hmm. um, and you know, he says it again uh, in when they actually start the fight. Yeah, he just says, "Come, sir, your passado." Which, yeah. and if you look again at um, at Silver's um, Silver's work, paradoxes of defence. He and I won't do this quote justice because uh, it's off the top of my head. But he has this fantastic line, which is, "Bring me a fencer, and I'll bring him out of his fence tricks with good downright blows." And, you know, essentially right, right, yeah. what Shakespeare <laughs> is alluding to when he says, come, sir, your passado, is he's saying, <laughs> you come and thrust at me, Tybalt, come yeah. and thrust at me, and I will bring you out of these these tricks with good downright blows, with good downright yeah, vertical. Yeah, so he, he's, just a, yeah, he's just a brawler. He'll just pound him to the ground. Well, he's not, <laughs> he's not necessarily a brawler. It's just a different style of fighting. Right. Um, and it's a right. different style of fighting based on the weapons that they were using. The rapiers were long and thin, very long, 
very thin, and they were completely designed around thrusting. They weren't designed to cut at all. Right, right. Um, so the Reverso then is the backhand version of that? Exactly, yeah. The, the, mm-hmm. the Reverse is a, is a thrust from the inside line in what we would call in the Italians, the Italians would call in the hand position of, of cart or four. So what's the what's the high what's the high then? The, the high? <laughs> what is the high? <laughs> uh, you know, it's certainly not a term that is in common parlance um, in mm. fencing, um, but it, it could be like a um, like an appeal, like a sound, like a vocalization on a hit. Yeah, um, sure. Something sure. like that, mm. um, or it could be yeah. you know hitting the mark. Um, but yeah. It, yeah, it's not one of the. It's 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 kind of I don't know. It sits outside the main lexicon of fencing terms. Yeah. Really, there's really interesting things in in that speech. You know, rests me his minimum rest, which to me he's saying he sets himself in a ward, in a guard. He sets himself in a very um, distinct guard. One, two, and a third in your bosom is you mm. know is a is is a compound attack. It denotes that he's using the point and and. He's he's emphasising um, that this character thrusts his sword a lot, which in, in, yeah. in, a, in a few cases some authors and George Silver talks about it too. That thrusting um, uh, thrusting is an unmanly thing to do. But actually, yeah, in, jo- right. in George yeah. Silver's case, he's not saying don't thrust. He's just saying with this weapon, you're mad if you thrust when you're out. At this distance, but if you're in close, right. by all means thrust. But uh, uh, other commentators were quite disparaging of of thrusting, as well mm. at that time. So, Nigel, Shakespeare has been a part of your life for so long that I doubt you can even, you know, kind of cast your mind back and remember where it all started. But if you think about your uh, upbringing and you grew up in Brisbane, where is it that Shakespeare first occurred to you? When I went to drama school, I got I really got exposed to Shakespeare, and um, and I can honestly say that I was captivated. I mean, I did Shakespeare at school, but it was nothing about Shakespeare that really captivated mm-hmm. me back then. But when I went to drama yeah. school and we started to interrogate the text more deeply, I started to understand the language, and you know, and I started to actually use the language. Um, mm-hmm. Then you know, it just. It, it, be, it became a fascination for me. And then at what point did you decide that movement and uh, physical theatre and fight, stage combat and fighting were going to become central to your career? I can't say there was ever a clear moment where I went, this is what I'm going to do. Um, I just, it was, I think it was a, a gradual process of, you know, I got more and more opportunities to teach, mm. to choreograph. And to explore movement, and then you know, back in in two thousand three, I think it was, John asked me to come and do Hamlet with him, the Hamlet with Leon Ford. So really, I owe it to John. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. I, I owe so much to John actually. But the, the, yeah, he, yeah. that was the yeah. that was the first big production that I had worked on, and. And it was Hamlet of all things. <laughs> yeah, with, with the big fencing match at the end. And since then, as I mentioned in the intro, you've done, you know, three productions of Hamlet, at least with Bell Shakespeare, perhaps more. You've done three Romeo and Juliet's with Bell, another few with the Sydney Theatre Company. You've done stuff in Queensland. 
What I want to know is how do you come at a piece of choreography fresh when you've done that scene a gazillion times? Come, sir, your Passado. All right, here we go again. How do you throw out whatever you've done in, in a previous production and start again? I draw on a lot of um, influences with my work. Um, I, I like to see myself as a as a real collaborator. So I'm going to mm. um, offer and make use of what the actors bring um, and what they think about it. So obviously every every production is going to be different just because there are different performers. Yeah. yeah. Um, every production is going to be different because the director's different. Um, there's so many different variables. So that that in and of itself makes makes the choices different i i don't like repeating choreography personally i like to um every time i do a project i like to do something different mm. but with something like romeo and juliet i also like to start the conversation around the history of it and what what was going on in in england at the time like we're mm. talking about i love to start that conversation we, we may not um, end up. I mean, you could literally do that fight with Mercutio representing a traditional English style with a with a um, sort of a back sword, short sword, lots of cutting and mm -hmm. passing, and 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 Tybalt as uh, what Serviolo advocates. Or you could take it further, and you could have him doing Destreza. You could have him doing Spanish rapier, which mm -hmm. I have done before. And so that those there there you get very distinct stylistic differences. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't have to do that, you know. Obviously, every production is different because of the resources they have as well. But yeah. as a starting point, you can you can you can see, you can have a conversation about how these characters are bringing something completely different to the fight, mm -hmm. and 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 we should, as as storytellers, we should really um, embrace that idea. Yeah, and look, and I'm glad you brought that up. That word storytelling, because. Uh, that that's what I particularly admire about your work, Nigel. Is that you marry story with form. So so it's not like here's the story and now we we carve out a fight and we do that fight as a set piece and then the story continues. You are really really concerned, anxiously concerned with how each move in the fight links with story and character, right? Yeah, I I am. I I, I think it's important. At the end of the day we're telling a story and you know the playwright has written that moment in for a very particular reason uh, so we got to honor that and we've got to allow that to further the story to further the plot to express the the wants and needs of the character and so and i think in, in acknowledging that and exploring that it makes the work a lot more rich um, and it does make it seamless uh, or hopefully mm. it makes it seamless so that the work is is an is a natural integration into the narrative but also i think there's also an element though it's it's got to be exciting too mm. you know mm. it's like it's a sword fight it's got to be exciting and that's one thing i've always loved about working with bell shakespeare is they've always given me time the yeah. time that you require to build um a really complex and exhilarating fight scene it takes a mm. lot of time and i've really had a wonderful a wonderful opportunity to do that in all of these productions that i've done with bell 
You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. My guest today is Nigel Poulton. Now, Nigel, your most recent production with Bell was The Hamlet that was cut short uh, in 2020 and obviously coming back again this year, thank goodness. And in that production, you created uh, an absolutely extraordinary fight between Laertes and Hamlet, Jack Crumlin and Harriet Gordon Anderson. How long did it take you to put that together? We started that in pre-production. So months, months before rehearsals began. Yep, yep. Mm. We started um, We started on a regime, a technical regime of skill development. Mm. Um, and so we, it started with a, a week-long workshop. Uh, the actors went away with a series of exercises um, and drills that they uh, were asked to do. And so that by the time we started rehearsal, we, we would literally hit the ground running with it. And... And they did, you know, they worked incredibly hard and you could see it. You could see it, even though they were continually touching base with me throughout that process. So I knew they were working hard. You could see it on their bodies. You could see it in their form and their technique. Yeah. And you taught them real, real fencing technique. I mean, they, they were real fencing classes, right? Absolutely. Because I think that's, that's always been my, my aim is to embed the work in, in truth, embed the work in, in what, what is the technical truth of those weapon systems. Uh, having the actors understand how those weapons are really deployed is always going to help with them being a, being able to attach a story to it, ha- having helped them mm. make sense of it. And you, you know, you don't need to you, you don't need to contrive it. You know, you you teach them the technique, the proper technique, mm. and then it's a process of of. Um, anatomical adaptation, developing the fine motor skills mm. that you can only do over time. You can't do it instantly. There's so much that the body has to work through to be able to mm. get that softness and that um, you know, that articulation and that control, which and which those two performers had um, beautiful control, beautiful form. Um, both of them, just uh, it was it was such a joy to 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 train both those performers because they work mm. so hard uh, and they um, and they, em- they embraced the work and it, it was – we didn't start choreographing it, the actual fight, until about week two, maybe halfway through yeah, week right. two. Mm. Um, mm. The first week is, is just building up routines mm. and phrases, getting them used to the idea of choreography and working together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but also allowing us, um, myself and Pete, allowing us to see where the story sits and how do we want to manifest yep, this in the story and what, what, what are the things that we'd really like to see and, you know, what mm. are the things maybe we don't want to see. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it allows you that time by, by doing the prep up front. It allows you time and grace, you know, so that you can actually work your way into it. And, the, you know... The actors, uh, those actors in particular, were just really, really happy to just keep keep working on their technical proficiency, you know. Nigel, uh, when I think about the history of Bell Shakespeare and really in the last um, 10 or 15 years, you've really been central to the development of the artistic style of the company. You and Peter Evans, your collaboration certainly over the last decade has given the company its look and its style. Uh, And what I'm 
mean specifically by that is a a very rigorous physical language um, within within the company and also a um, an influence that's come from the practice of biomechanics which you have gradually built into your work over the years can you tell me about how that developed for you as an artist where did this concept of biomechanics come from for you well it, go, it goes all the way back to drama school and um, I I got hold of a book which was not part of my designated reading list, but I got hold of a book by Edward Braun called My Holder Revolution in Theatre. And I read it. I was fascinated by it. And uh, I remained uh, intrigued by My Holder. This was pre-internet. Um, uh, and so the resources and my access to resources was very limited. But eventually um, I, uh, I found... <clears throat> the current custodian of the system, Gennady Bogdanov, and I went and trained with him and mm. continued to train with him. Where was that? Where did you go? I, I went to the UK and Europe. So mm -hmm. um, the first time I went, I went to the UK. Um, and, uh, you know, I, that, 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 that first interaction just started a, a lifelong passion for the work. Mm. Um, and for this particular work or this system, I guess, the, the system of theatrical biomechanics. Um, and so then I, uh, I had the, the fortune to work with Pete at Melbourne Theatre Company on a production called Realism. And uh, that, was, that, that work was, that play was specifically centred around Meyerhold. Right. Uh, and so mm. the process was about training the actors up in biomechanics and manifesting biomechanics in a very stylized um, way, in a way that any anyone who knew anything about that system would recognize. But that collaboration was um, so wonderful for both of us. Uh, it set in motion a collaboration that, that still exists today. Look, personally, you know, I've uh, been an actor in that process with you. I've been a director as well sitting next to you as you take a group of actors through that process. What I really love about it is that it builds a feeling and a sense of ensemble very quickly. What we don't have as much in Australia these days is because we just can't afford it is full-time theatre ensembles who build a language and a trust over a number of years. So I think this is a system that allows actors to build that feeling of unity and ensemble very, very quickly. Look, I think any system is valid if you can do that, if you can build a sense of ensemble. It just so happens that my system is biomechanics. Um, I think that, uh, you know, Pete and I talked about this years ago when we first worked together. We talked about the idea of creating this ensemble of actors around the country that spoke this same language. Mm. Um, and that that we would build up over time, and, and that that has happened, you know. So now there's a there's a there's a bunch of actors around Australia that have been exposed to this process, yes, yeah, um, and speak that language, and for the most part, you know, um, love it, and and still still keep training at various levels in that system in their own way, and it's been a great experience, and to be able to galvanize a cast by bringing them together, bringing them together under a common umbrella and that umbrella is is developing a theatrical language that 
is defined by um, biomechanics and making them uh, work hard and working mm. hard with them, you know, there's a sense of fulfillment through that process, you know, you, you, yeah. you yeah. and I think part of, part of what galvanizes a cast is that it's, it is challenging. Mm. It challenges you. Yeah. I think that's really important. I think people by and large love that. And they certainly love it when they can look back on it and go, look what we did. Look at all yes. the work that we did. Mm. Um, boy, that was hard, but I'm glad I did that. Yeah, definitely glad they did it. But but also because obviously the product that comes out on stage is so startlingly different when you have a system like that in place. Uh, what I lo love about it, I suppose, is the, uh, the abstraction um, that can be brought to bear uh, on a production when you have a system of biomechanics in place. Biomechanics is taught through a system of etudes or, or studies which isolate body parts and isolate particular movements. And then that gets fed into the rehearsal work and so what you get is this wonderfully abstract sometimes occasionally surreal moments on stage which are informed by the biomechanics system and and then which allow the audience I think to to read uh, the play or the production in in completely different ways and, and it brings out the ambiguity of Shakespeare I think that's what I really love about it yeah I agree and you know, I think you know one of the beautiful things about biomechanics work is that it does ask um, the performer to embrace the non-literal yes um, embrace the the fantasy you know to stylize the work to be um, to embrace expression and gesture mm. and um, and it, there's a language uh, that's tied into that that's very evocative mm. and and I think it's it's great for actors to get out of um, their literal heads and um, and and be free to explore the fantasy of theatre mm. and to find different ways to tell stories because Shakespeare's language, um, you know, is is so beautiful and he paints these beautiful pictures with words. Mm. It's great to try and find how to um, support these pictures yes. physically and find new and different ways. That you can support that 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 language and tell that story, um, and you know, and investigate um, non-literal approaches to the work, mm, mm. and and things like you know, like like it's movement, right? It's it's movement, but um, movement is also stillness, mm. you know, and and looking at the value of stillness and the and the the, the importance of rhythm in movement mm. and. And then shifts in rhythm, but also the physicality, you know, the strength of the actor, yeah. posture and carriage and all of these things that make um, make the performance and, and make the make the actor dynamic and make them watchable, you know. Yes. See, they're all elements that that biomechanics develops. Yeah, and there are no moves wasted, I find, on stage. You know, uh, sometimes one of my complaints about uh, young actors in training often is that they'll shuffle around the stage or they'll move for the sake of moving, whereas I think actors who are trained in this system really uh, take care to make sure that every move has a specific purpose and every move is there for a reason. That's right. That's, a, that's such a great observation. I totally agree, Jimmy. And also... 
you, you know, the the understanding your body and the information mm. that your body gives mm. in any position in any way, mm. and then how to manipulate that, how to manipulate that your body shape, whether it's overtly or really subtly, in order to convey meaning, mm. um, is a is a really important part of that process, mm. you know, and and the attitudes manifest that in its most extreme way. Now, Nigel, one of the more recent strings to your bow, uh, parts of your work, is working on intimacy protocols and intimacy directing. This is really, really important, and it's come up, obviously, as the Me Too movement swept through theatre companies around the world, and we realised that we really needed to have a conversation about how we do intimacy on stage. So how did you get involved in this movement and in coming up with protocols and directing intimacy? Well, as a movement director and fight director, I inevitably get asked to do work on scenes of intimacy um, and and scenes of violence and scenes of um, sexual assault. Uh, mm. And over the years, you hope that you develop um, sensitive and respectful practices around that. Mm. Um, but there, there, as you said, there, there was a movement happening, in, particularly in the U.S., one of the pioneers of that movement is a lady called Alicia Rodas. And um, uh, I, uh, I wanted to have my process vetted by people that were doing this particular work yeah. professionally mm -hmm. in the workplace and they were doing it um, all the time. Mm. So I went over there to to do that, to have my process vetted. I didn't go over there to become an intimacy director or an intimacy coordinator. I just wanted to develop my practice. Right. And uh, as a result of going over there, I was then invited to become part of the pedagogy track, I guess, and uh, and become mm -hmm. an apprentice. Mm -hmm. And Alicia became my mentor. Um, and so uh, Alicia has been right. mentoring me for the last three years now. And uh, and that mentorship uh, involves um, a lot of Skype conversations. Um, it involves me going over mm. to the US to train uh, in in specific workshops, and it also involves me going over to shadow Alicia on set. So last time I was over there, I went on any number of sets with her. Um, I got to go around the country delivering workshops, consent workshops, intimacy workshops at various institutions around the US, mm. um, University of Michigan, Juilliard, Wright State University, NYU. So it was, um, it, mm. it's been an amazing, amazing experience that I'm very grateful for. Um, and I was out of that process. I, I you know, I, I became certified as an intimacy director and intimacy coordinator. And so, so what are the conversations that that actors need to have in the rehearsal room to ensure a safe room when it comes to a, a scene in intimacy? The main conversation is about consent, communication and consent. Um, and if, if people aren't having a conversation um, along those lines, then we're in very grey waters. So I like to set up the room 
um, with a series of exercises mm -hmm. that establish a value system around consent and boundaries. And right. wh wh what I'm trying to do um, is just normalize those conversations mm -hmm. so that people um, feel free to ask and also express their their boundaries mm. and um, and are free and open to talk about consent and what they are willing to do and what they're not willing to do and what they're willing to explore and what they're not willing to explore. And I keep, um, I keep saying this, you know, we don't really spend that much time thinking about our boundaries until we're put on the spot. Right. But right. if we do, if we do think about it, um, a little bit more, um, we can start to work out what those boundaries are for us. Mm. But there is that conversation that is really important. Um, and then there is the conversation about if, if we're dealing with moments of choreography, then there is that conversation of the choreography and building the choreography and making sure that the choreography fulfills the artistic vision, but also the expectations of the actors yeah. and performers that are involved in it. So, and I think really that whole process is about being transparent and open and having right. really clear um, conversations about what is being asked and why. So mm. contextualizing the work, always contextualizing the work inside the, the framework of a story and storytelling is really important. Why yeah. are we doing this? How does it facilitate the story? Yeah. Look, I, I think uh, this work that you do is extraordinary and so important and necessary. I've heard some people say that, oh, you, you know, you're stifling creativity in the room by, by putting so many boundaries um, around the work. Uh, but, but I find that very puzzling because I think what what was happening previously was people were worried about speaking up because they thought that they would be either ridiculed or that they would lose their job or they wouldn't work again if they spoke up. And so people were being pushed into doing things that they really weren't comfortable with. Whereas if you could just have that conversation to begin with, then everyone knew where they stood and you can start to build something from there. I, I, I can't agree with you more, Jimmy. Like the, the boundaries provide freedom. People feel much more likely to explore mm. and create when they're given boundaries within which to operate because there's a level of certainty there. Mm. Mm. I've seen it time and time again. When people know <clears throat> what what those boundaries are, there is a release, you know, and there mm. there is a, a a relief and and people feel safe yeah. and confident mm. with each other. There's this beautiful quote, uh, if you feel safe and loved, your brain becomes specialized in exploration, play and cooperation. If you are frightened and unwanted, it specializes in managing feelings of fear and abandonment. It's by Bessel van der Kolk who mm. wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Mm. I love that. I love that quote because, you know, it, if really as in a, if we're trying to facilitate a creative process yeah. um, and I think for me anyway, the only way to facilitate a creative process is making everyone feel safe and comfortable and, the, and, and part of that is making sure they know they're being looked after. And then from, from, by setting those preconditions or mm. by setting those conditions, if you like, then people feel safe to explore and create. That's great, Nigel. That's so good. 
Nigel, it's been so great to talk to you. But just before we wrap up today, I've got a segment called The Final Five. I've got five quick questions for you. I need five quick answers. Okay, here we go, Nigel, number one. How quick? <laughs> In Shakespeare, do you prefer the lovers or the villains? Oh, that's tricky. I like, I like, I can't answer that really. I like the plays and the stories, yeah. you know? Like, yeah. uh, so yeah. I don't necessarily like the genres. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, Mm-hmm. But you know, I don't know. Can you go past Richard? Can you go past Richard the <laughs> Third? Exactly. I mean, exactly. <laughs> uh, what an incredible character, Nigel. What do you think is the most underrated Shakespeare play? One you love that you think is underrated? Well, I think Macbeth is one of the most underrated plays. You reckon it's I underrated? Think, <laughs> well, I, I, it's, it, for me, it's under, underrated because. Um, it's a really complex play that can become really overly simplified. I see. Yep. Gotcha. But there's mm-hmm. so much going on mm. um, and there's so many complexities to it mm. uh, that and I find every so – how many times have I worked on it? I've worked on it a bunch of times. Um, yeah. It's so rich. Um, mm. Mm. And, and it's one of those ones where it's easy to go down a really obvious path with it. Sure. Um, uh, and I think those productions that do that are, are, are always less interesting. Fair enough. Who is your favourite actor you'd love to work with who you haven't worked with already? Oh, I don't know, Jimmy. <laughs> you've, worked with, you've worked with theatre royalty, Nige, so <laughs> it can be anyone. Yeah, I don't I don't have a favourite actor. I love whoever I'm working with, you mm-hmm. know. Like uh, I, I, I don't necessarily look forward to working with anyone or not you know i'm, I'm happy to yeah i can't say i no. can't i'm sorry okay, mate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you've worked with pretty much everyone i know shakespeare dream role that you'd love to play one day nige well, you know, I, I I would absolutely say Tybalt, but yeah, you know, that's that's yes. past me. <laughs> <laughs> well, why so, not? So, you know, maybe it's more Macduff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you'd be a great Macduff. I'd love to see that. Turn, <laughs> hellhound, turn. Yeah, no, I would love to play Macduff yeah. or Talbot. Oh, there's always Talbot's had a really weird kind of place in my Brilliant. heart. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> Nigel, if you weren't in the performing arts, what do you think you'd be doing? I would be brewing beer, Jimmy. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> on a property Craft beer in que- on a property in Queensland, just kicking back. <laughs> uh, yep, yep. <laughs> Nigel, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you as always. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Jimmy. It's been an absolute delight. Bell Shakespeare is Australia's national Shakespeare company. We perform in theatres and schools in every state and territory. If you'd like to support our work or to learn more about what we do, please visit bellshakespeare.com.au. Speak the Speech is produced by Bell Shakespeare and edited by Camillo Zanoni. Be sure to follow at Bell Shakespeare on social media and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the Speak the Speech podcast through your listening platform. <laughs>